scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, the 10th chapter, verses 1 through 10, and it reads, Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So again, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and bandits, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I admit that, uh, you know, the last time I preached, there were a lot more people here. Uh, They must have heard I was coming. Uh, Week two of our strange new world, this uh, new reality has made me fodder among my seminary classmates. There was a, a running joke. Apparently back in the day, I had televangelist hair, and so they all teased me that I was the minister in our class most likely to become a televangelist. Surprise! We're all televangelists at this point, but here we are. So John 10, the story of sheep and and gates and shepherds, etc., is a strange uh, piece of of scripture. I think if I were still sitting in Miss Messer's 12th grade English class and I turned in this essay for an assignment, I would expect to be graded poorly. Uh, It's this jumbled mess of mixed metaphors and, and strange connections that seem to make no sense. At one point, Jesus is a shepherd, and then he's a gate, and and then he's a good shepherd, but yet he also talks about thieves and bandits, and then talks about some kind of gatekeeper and sheep. I mean, it's it's all over the map. And now it's familiar scripture. It comes up in the lectionary every year. So around the fourth Sunday uh, after Easter. Lee, you're going to have to find something else to talk about, but you've got about six weeks to to figure that out, so sorry. Uh, So we we preach this pretty routinely, and when we do that, we take it and we set it up on its own, and and we try our best to to build a sermon out of that, and there's some good stuff here. You you can talk about the voice of the shepherd, and you can talk about the gate, uh, Jesus as the way or the path to the, the stream of love and light and energy that is God and and so there is there are things to talk about but this text really takes on full life when it's connected to the rest of the the narrative. See, it, if we put it back in its literary context, then it makes more sense. It becomes a a fuller story. So I want to draw us back to the story that Lee talked about last Sunday in John chapter nine. It's a great story, the story of the man born 
blind. The, the difficulty with the story of the man born blind is that the, the miracle ends up uh, kind of overshadowing the lesson. I mean, it's not every day somebody gets their sight back. And so naturally, when we read it, that's where we're tempted to pause. But even Jesus, if you read the story, seems to shrug that part off. Remember how the story begins, that Jesus and his disciples are walking through, they encounter this man blind from birth, they ask him about sin, he sort of shrugs, makes a facial for the guy, and tells him to go wash. The interesting thing about the story is the man never asks to be healed. It's not in the text. And in some ways, as it plays out, you might wonder if he even would have welcomed such an intrusion, because as soon as he comes back and he can now see all you-know-what breaks loose. The guy's life is totally upended. Everything that made sense before, even though it might not have been ideal, is gone. And, and this strange new world that he lives in is, is, is threatening and, and vulnerable and, and scary. The Pharisees absolutely lose their minds. They go after the guy, and they ask him, like, who are you? Are you really the guy? How is it that you were blind? Now you can see. He answers them honestly. I'm going to paraphrase by going, oh, I digress. Uh, he, they go to his parents. They ask them what's happening. They throw the guy under the bus. They tell him, well, look, he's an adult. You can ask him. We don't have any idea. And then they go and the Pharisees go after the guy a second time. This is my favorite of the exchanges because you can tell at this point the guy has had enough. He's really kind of over it. And he gets just a little sassy with them. They start in again. Who are you and how did this play out? And the guy says, look, all I know is I was blind one day. Now I can see. As for the rest of it, I got nothing. In fact, and this is my favorite part, how about I hook you up with this Jesus? Apparently you want to be his follower too, right? Which is a great moment. Now, this part isn't in the text, but you can hear the guy's frustration coming through in what he says. And you can almost hear him say, and I tell you what, Jesus, next time you decide to do me some favors, would you check with me first? Because I got to tell you, ever since you entered my life, nothing has made sense. Now, that part we might be able to identify with. Ever since Jesus entered his life, nothing made sense anymore. Now the story ends with an exchange that is in the text that we need to see. So if you still have your Bibles open, chapter 9, verse 35, it, it reads, Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, When he found him. Just a couple of little words there, but they are so significant. Because if Jesus found him, then that means he was looking for him. See, none of this could have come as any surprise to Jesus. He had to have known that if he healed the man, then the Pharisees were going to go crazy. And he had to know and expect that there's no way the religious establishment of that day could handle something as wild as the movement of the Spirit, this free-flowing love of God. But Jesus went looking for the man. Friends, what does that sound like? I can't believe I just asked a question to an empty room. The five of you that are here, what does that sound like? It sounds like a shepherd to me. 
See, elsewhere in the Gospels, we see that image, right? The story of the 99 and, and the one, the shepherd that will leave the flock and go find the one. So before Jesus calls himself a shepherd in chapter 10, he looks like a shepherd in chapter 9. Now they have this great exchange that culminates in the guy saying, Lord, I believe and worshiping him. So before Jesus calls himself the gate or the way toward the love of God, he acts like it in chapter 9. You see, in so many ways, chapter 10 functions as an explanation of the action we just saw in chapter 9. That way, all these analogies and metaphors suddenly have a place to, to anchor and, and call home. See, this entire narrative, 9 through, I would argue, even into 11, so, you know, there you go for next week. I think the, the, the climax of the whole piece, maybe the climax of the entire Gospel of John, is the second half of that 10th verse. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, abundant life is a, kind of a big concept. I have a feeling that abundant life means something different to different people. You see, abundant life to some people is a full calendar, a robust schedule. It's a million places to go and commitments aplenty. It's uh, something every night of the week and it's different groups to be a part of and it's running around with your hair on fire 90 miles an hour all the time because after all, the busier I can be, the more important I must be, right? See, it's funny how quickly things change. I look at my calendar and there's like the, the pre-COVID time and the post-COVID time. See, before we were living in this, 90 miles an hour all the time, Lisa and I would work every week to try to sit down and, and create, carve out one night a week for us to have dinner together as a family. And if we felt like we had achieved that, just one, then we had accomplished something. See, in that reality, it was as if we, we craved the quiet night, the no place to go, the pause in the action. Now everything feels upside down. 99% of what I do got wiped out like that. It's gone. I work with the public. I can't call the youth together. We can't have meetings here at church. There's no place to go because we're not supposed to be around each other. And Suddenly it feels like all of life is quiet and paused, and now I crave something to do, some place to be, a, a type of interaction of any kind. So maybe that full calendar isn't the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. For some, abundant life has to do with stuff, the accumulation of more and more stuff. The more toys we can gather, the more things we can cram into our homes or our pantries, if you will, uh, then the better off we'll be. And so we continue to purchase more and more and more things, and it's to the point that I don't know if your house looks like mine, but it, we have way too much stuff. Lisa and I have a two-car garage, and we both park in the driveway because you couldn't fit a car in there if you tried. I would ask for an amen, but again, it's an empty room, so a virtual amen. Uh, we're to the point now that there's too much stuff, and I would like to push the stuff out because everywhere I look, there's so much stuff, it doesn't feel abundant. It feels like a burden. 
And even if you haven't accumulated it and filled your house with it, there's a cultural value associated with an abundance of stuff that is peculiarly, easy for me to say, strangely American in nature. I remember several years ago, I hosted a, a foreign exchange student from Germany. She was with us about eight months, delightful young woman, but when she arrived, she needed some basic things. Now, we lived in a small town, so we headed to the only place you could go in that town to get things, and that's, of course, Walmart. So we walked in the door of Walmart. Her eyes popped, and she said, what is this place? Well, I just kind of shrugged. I said, it's, it's, it's Walmart. I admit, it's a slice of life. Um, we, we walked the place, and she needed some basic toiletries, shampoo and soap and f- face scrubs, the, the kinds of magic potions teenage girls use and I don't understand. So she needed that. And so we headed to that part of the, the store, and I took her to the shampoo aisle. Her jaw hit the floor. And she said, what are you, why so many choices? I I shrugged and I said, I honestly, I I don't know. It's it's so normal to us. I'd never stop to think about the absurdity of that. Why do we need 150 different choices of shampoo? It's crazy. She says, at home, we might have a shelf, four or five choices, maybe. But this, this is crazy. Think about what your stores look like now. Now, admittedly, they're catching back up thanks to the hard work of supply chain managers and truck drivers and, and hardworking stock people and, and whatnot in, in stores. I'm amazed at, at their ability to, to try to recover. But at the height of this, remember walking into to a store like Kroger and remember how you felt when you saw those empty shelves. It was vulnerable, wasn't it? A little scary. It, it, it leads us to kind of buy into this, like, oh my gosh, if things are going away, I need to start snatching up whatever I can, because for some reason, we too have bought into this lie that there's always going to be plenty, that this is what abundance must mean. Two Fridays ago, when we were coming back from Lexington, I took the girls to Kroger. Uh, we needed one thing, and, and it was a shock to their system, my very American children, to see empty shelves. We went to the bread aisle, not one loaf. And I said, well, that's okay, I'll make bread, let's go get a bag of flour. So we go to the flour aisle, not one bag. Well, I mean, they had some gluten-free flour, but nobody eats that garbage. So, nothing. They were a little shook. So, maybe an abundance of things isn't the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. Now, some, for some people, abundance has to connect to money. Uh, how much can you earn? How much can you, can you bring home? How much can you gain in your portfolio? How, how much can you stack together until you feel as though you are invulnerable or powerful in our uh, strange society? But yet I ache for the hundreds of thousands of people who this week have lost their jobs, 
or even if they have a job, their income has now become unstable or non-existent. I think about my cousin. He works in the music industry, and a big part of his income is gig-based, and there are no gigs right now. I talked to him this week, and he said, all I can hope for is that it doesn't last long. It's beyond restaurant workers and, and, and musicians. It's into all levels of the economy. We're all scared. The church is nervous in this moment. So maybe an abundance of money also isn't the abundant life that Jesus was talking about. Friends, by any measure, this is a difficult and painful and awkward time. It's scary. But I think in it there is also an opportunity. Because as each one of these uh, false abundances get stripped away from our lives, we have the opportunity to imagine life in a new way. Yeah, my calendar got decimated this week, but you know what replaced it is that we had all six of us home this week. We had family dinner every night, and we talked, and we laughed, we played games. We're in the middle of a thousand-piece puzzle that we're working on as a family. We, we had a bonfire and roasted hot dogs in the yard. We sang songs. We, we went on a hike. It felt abundant to me. And we uh, may not have a lot of stuff but what we do have, we've stripped down to what's important. Here at church, we're making the similar kind of decisions. As we created this kind of worship space, we, we stripped it down to its barest essentials. We had to ask those questions. What is it that needs to happen for us to feel as though we've offered a meaningful worship service? It turns out we provide for the children. We spend time in prayer. We spend time in the Word, and, and we gather for communion. And somehow in the austerity of this moment, it feels abundant again. I want to share with you uh, a poem that's been circulating on social media that I think speaks well to this moment. It's by Laura Kelly Finucci. It reads, When this is over, May we never again take for granted a handshake with a stranger, full shelves at the store, conversations with neighbors, a crowded theater, Friday night out, the taste of communion, a routine checkup, the school rush each morning, coffee with a friend, the stadium roaring, each deep breath, a boring Tuesday, life itself. When this ends, may we find that we have become more like the people we wanted to be, that we were called to be, that we hoped to be. And may we stay that way 
better for each other because of the worst. I'm so impressed and and moved by the ways in which I see us seeking connection. We're reaching out in innumerable ways because we no longer have the routines of school and work and worship and youth group and just running out for coffee any longer. And so in order to maintain our relationships, to maintain our connections, we must make that phone call, make that text, set up that Zoom meeting. We're seeing video conferencing pop up for the church all over the place through JYF tonight at four or youth group. We had four meetings this week or with Sunday school classes. I know of several meeting this morning. Because we know that even though we cannot be together physically, we dare not stay apart because we need one another. Perhaps we can find a way to embrace this moment and celebrate each one of these things, these imposters, these items in life that are distractions, these these things that masquerade as abundant life, as each one falls or is stripped away. May we tune our hearts and minds ever more carefully to the voice of our shepherd who calls us to the way of love and life that God intends for us. May we, through this time, learn more carefully how to live and love like Jesus. Amen.